you're listening to a Bellingcat Discord server stage talk titled Open Source Evidence in the Jurisprudence of International Criminal Courts and Tribunals. The talk features Judy Miyoki, a defense counsel at the International Criminal Court, where her work deals with allegations of crimes against humanity in Kenya and war crimes in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Judy spoke about the history of the use of open source evidence in international courts, from the Nuremberg trials to today. The stage talk was hosted by Giancarlo Fiorella on February 9th, 2023. I'm very happy to introduce our guest today. Her name is Judy Mionki. She is an international criminal and human rights lawyer practicing as defense counsel at the International Criminal Court in The Hague, where uh, her work deals with allegations of crimes against humanity in Kenya and war crimes in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Judy is also an independent consultant uh, and has worked as an open source investigator um, for Amnesty International's Evidence Lab for Colombia and on Ukraine as a legal advisor to the international justice team. Judy is here to talk to us today, and the title of her talk is Open Source Evidence in the Jurisprudence of International Criminal Courts and Tribunals. Judy, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I will now hand over the microphone uh, to you. Thanks again. Well, good evening, everyone, and thank you so much, Giancarlo, I mean, for that introduction and for inviting me to be part of this series of talks. Um, I trained with Bellingcat a couple of years back. I've been part of this Discord channel, part of the Twitch community for quite a long time, so this is such an honor. Um, I'm going to start with a caveat. Um, for those of you who work with open source information, you know that it takes varied formats, and I will not be referencing all types of open source information that has been tendered as evidence in international criminal trials. It's impossible to do so. <clears throat> but I want to mostly focus on photos and videos. Um, I'm also going to be focusing on international criminal law, which is a subsection of public international law. So um, international criminal law deals with individual criminal responsibility. So when um, grave crimes happen, international criminal law seeks to find out who, and that means which individual, is criminally responsible or can be held criminally responsible. And when we talk about grave crimes, I mean, of course, the question is, what are the grave crimes there for? Um, there's war crimes, which I imagine a lot of you are familiar with. Um, there are violations of the laws and customs of war. So when a prosecutor is trying to prove that an act has taken place, so, for instance, the act could be murder or rape or pillage or destruction of cultural property. If a prosecutor is trying to prove this as a war crime, they would also have to prove that a war is taking place, an international armed conflict or a non-international armed conflict. And then we have crimes against humanity. And these are crimes perpetrated against the civilian population. And unlike the war crimes, they do not need an access to conflict. So they can take place at peacetime. So when you think about a single underlying act, for instance, rape or murder, um, it can be considered a crime against humanity as long as the prosecutor also proves that it's taking place during 
a, wide, a widespread or systematic attack on the civilian population. And the third crime, the third grave act is, and there's no hierarchy, by the way, there's no superior crime. But the third one is genocide, um, which is, you know, acts committed with a very specific intent. And this intent has to be proven by the prosecutor, which is to destroy in whole or in part. And when I say in whole or, or in part, I mean that there are no numbers involved. It could be very few people. It could be an entire population. But there has to be that specific intent to destroy in whole or in part four protected groups. And there are only four because this is a misconception some people make, there are only four protected groups according to the definition of genocide. That's national groups, ethnic groups, racial groups, and religious groups. And then the last one is aggression. So the act of aggression is when a state invades another state. But again, with international criminal law, we are looking for who is individually responsible for planning, preparing, initiating or executing that act of aggression. So um, that was just a preamble, if you will, of my topic today. Um, I'm going to go to part one, which is where I talk about international criminal courts and tribunals and how they've used open source information as evidence. Um, and here, another caveat. I'm not going to be speaking about hybrid tribunals. So hybrid tribunals are um, they have an international element and then they have a domestic element. So both in their law and in their composition. So who works for these courts, which judges are hired. There's always that sort of international and domestic element. So for instance, you think about the special court for Sierra Leone, which prosecuted uh, former president of Liberia, uh, Charles Taylor, or you will think of for those working with cell site information, you think of the special tribunal for Lebanon, or the um, extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia. Those are examples of hybrid tribunals. What I'm going to be speaking about today is what we think about as international courts. And yes, there are nuances here that I will not get into because there's all, all these discussions as to what constitutes a hybrid tribunal or what constitutes an ad hoc tribunal. I'm not going to be speaking about those nuances. I'm only going to start from Nuremberg, which is the first ever international criminal court, and then move all the way to the ICC, the International Criminal Court, which is going to be the second part of my talk. And then the last part is going to be some fair trial implications. So as I said, the first ever um, international tribunal was a Nuremberg tribunal. So after World War II in 1945, the Allied powers, that's the US, the UK, um, the Soviet Union and France, they came together to establish the International Military Tribunal, IMT, or Nuremberg Tribunal, because it was based in Nuremberg and because a lot of the Nazi rallies were held in Nuremberg. So the tribunal was established to prosecute crimes committed by the Nazis. And here you will see um, there was a concerted effort by the chief prosecutor to use or to rely on other forms of evidence, not just witness testimony. Mostly because, as we now know, the Nazis were meticulous in keeping records, so these records were used against them, but also because there were a lot of journalists or war correspondents who had taken films and photographs at the time. So these were relied on, and if you go on YouTube, you can see some of these trials, some recordings of these trials. 
There's one particular one I want to point to, and that's day eight of the Nuremberg uh, trial, where the prosecutor introduced the concentration camp film. And I want to point to two things here. One, that it is, of course, considered open source, but also that it was only introduced by the prosecutor as compelling visual information. It was not the entire proof, and the prosecutor actually says that, that this is not the entire proof, but in his words, it's a brief and unforgettable form that offers an explanation of what the words concentration camp imply. Because if you look at the film itself, you will realize that these are not the most highly responsible uh, when it comes to individual criminal responsibility. Sometimes these films, you know, depict um, the foot soldiers or they will just show um, the terror that was um, implicated against the people. So it's not necessarily the proof to tie to the people uh, implicated by the court. So he says that this is not his entire proof, that he actually intends to uh, provide more sources of evidence that will tie that concentration camp to the defendants. And that's the first takeaway. And the second takeaway is that the film um, is not shown in a vacuum. So the prosecutor also um, produces affidavits, an affidavit from the person who um, um, filmed the, the film that was shown, and also an affidavit, uh, more affidavits actually, more than one, of people saying that this is actually the true depiction. It has not been altered, it has not been retouched, and it has not been distorted in any way. And so that's the second takeaway, that we need this sort of um, authentication process, that it is not necessarily just a film that is shown without any um, evidence on how it was created or edited. And we see in the judgment of uh, Nuremberg judgment that you will see that there has been some mention of film and photos, not as much as I would like to see, but there is some reference to the films and the photos which clearly shows that the judges thought it was relevant and it was probative. And I'm going to speak about what these two words mean in a little bit. So I hope I'm not speaking too fast, by the way. Feel free to interrupt me if I am. No, no, I, I hear you perfectly and everything's fascinating so far. All right, thank you. Um, and so in that was 1945. In 1946, we see the establishment of the Tokyo Tribunal or the International Military Tribunal for the Far East. And this one was established to prosecute um, some members of the Japanese Empire um, for crimes committed in the lead up to and during World War II. And a lot of the evidence was destroyed by the Japanese. They say up to 70% of the evidence was destroyed. And so perhaps because of that, the chief prosecutor did not necessarily rely on more types of evidence. It was mostly witness testimony. And I'm currently writing uh, my thesis on something completely unrelated, but that has forced me to read the Tokyo Judgment in depth. I'm writing on conflict-related sexual violence. And in reading this, you see that, for instance, the atrocities committed in Nanking or Nanjing, um, there was a video that depicted these atrocities, but was not shown. 
But also, if you look further in a lot of the analysis that has been written about this, um, these trials, you will see that the Dutch prosecutor, assistant prosecutor, he also produced a film, again, produced by war correspondents and journalists, um, that was propaganda, essentially. It was to show that the Japanese were treating the POWs, the prisoners of war, perfectly fine, which of course we know the opposite is a war crime, how you treat uh, prisoners of war. And so they had released this video that was basically saying, look, we're doing the right thing. But then the Dutch prosecutor also released photographs um, after the liberation of the POWs, showing exactly what the conditions were. And so he's saying, we see the film, but we also see these, all this evidence that proves, you know, contrary to what they, they, they said. And he also had witness testimony to corroborate this evidence which again takes me to my two takeaways, that not only is it authenticated, it is corroborated, which is, you know, is going to be the theme of my talk, basically. Um, and again, in the decision, in the judgment, you see very little mention of film and photograph. There's very little information on authentication as well, proof of originality, um, which I imagine now will be completely different, but then um, clearly the body of evidence that was produced in, in these trials led to the convic convictions, and it was not necessarily a lot that had to do with video or photographs. And so now I'm going to skip almost 50 years later, because it was about 48 years later when the next crop of international criminal tribunals um, or courts were established, and that's in 1993, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, or the ICTY, or the Yugoslav Tribunal. So it was established by the United Nations, and it was established to prosecute crimes committed in the Balkans in the 90s. And here again, we see reliance on the use of film and photographs to show, for instance, the separation of boys and men from the women and the girls in Srebrenica massacre, which was genocide. And we see video, these videos filmed by, again, journalists, war correspondents, the UNHCR, and they're used as evidence to show this separation, which we, again, now know if we're seeing this sort of separation, we should be thinking what is about to happen here, right? Um, but we also see witnesses brought in to testify that the films were, for instance, complete, unaltered, um, which is, again, going back to the theme of the talk, but the biggest advancement here is the use of satellite imagery used as evidence like to show mass graves of uh, the Srebrenica massacre. This was not open source satellite imagery, I have to point that out, it was from the US government, um, and they had a lot of prerequisites on how the, prose the prosecution could use this evidence. So for instance, the prosecution could not lead information on how you know, they, how this information was collected, how it was analyzed. So which of course meant that the defense um, objected on the reliability of this information because they had very little to go with. They could not question who had collected this evidence, how was it created, how was it edited, etc. And so the chamber, um, the judges, they say, we notice that there is the lack of this information 
but it does not interfere with our analysis of its credibility. And why? Because it's corroborated by witness testimony. And there was also uh, prosecution witnesses who were brought in, um, who were investigators, basically, to, to speak to the authenticity of these products. And I'm going to go some, somewhat later, I'm going to speak about the fair trial implications of that. But again, it was corroborated, and I think mostly it shows that this information cannot be produced in a vacuum, that we need all this sort of information that comes in to tie it all together. And so in 1994, we moved to the UN establishing the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, the ICTR, where you know I, had, I was very lucky to be an intern. <laughs> I was, uh, it, it's where I started my career as an intern and then as a junior legal researcher. Um, and if we are talking about um, information, like open source information slash digital evidence, we have to talk about the media case at the ICTR. And this is where persons who were, uh, were prosecuted basically for the use of newspaper and radio to incite hate speech, uh, to incite the genocide. And this sort of goes to whoever is working amongst us who's working on propaganda, hate speech, disinformation. This, this is a perfect case to study. Um, we see that, of course, admission into evidence, um, newspapers, photographs, broadcasts, um, to sort of prove that they were, these persons were inciting genocide. But also, I think one aspect that I found quite interesting was that the judges did their own analysis of the photograph. So we had a lot of um, witnesses, uh, for instance, uh, a person who was very well known in Human Rights Watch, Alison Defoge, who wrote a book about the whole you know, incitement to genocide. And she was called as a witness. There were photographs that she had to analyze as well. So we see witnesses also called in to analyze this information. But I think what's interesting is that the judges do their own analysis. So there is one of the defendants who, in one photograph, is seen as wearing a tie that has insignia or logo that um, sort of shows that he belongs to this political party that um, was known for perpetrating a lot of the massacres. But the judges look at different photos around this time, not just the one newspaper cover that had him wearing this tie, but other photos around that time. And they say, actually, this insignia is superimposed. It's not, um, we cannot say we, we will rely on this one photo to prove that he was part of this party. I mean, to be honest with you, he did not... Um, you know, he did not deny that he was in part of this party. He was clearly guilty. So it, it has nothing to do with the guilt. It's more to show that the, the judges also do their own analysis, and they should. Particularly now, I imagine it's going to be even harder with shallow and deep fakes. But um, it's part of why I think judges in these courts also need their own specific training so that they can do their own specific analysis outside of what they hear from the witnesses and the expert witnesses. Um, and so we get to the second part of my talk, which is the International Criminal Court. Uh, the International Criminal Court was established in 2002 in Rome, um, and the law governing the ICC is called the Rome Statute for that reason. 
And the ICC de deals with all the four grave crimes, not all the above uh, international courts that I've, I've spoken about deal with the four grave crimes, but the ICC does. Again, with some nuances on, on jurisdiction, but th at the very least, you will see that the Rome Statute has all the four crimes. Um, so just like these other crimes, these other, sorry, international criminal courts and tribunals that I've spoken about, you will see that the ICC has no established rules for using digital evidence. So every evidence that the prosecutor has has to go through the same motions of normal evidence and admissibility rules. A lot of the discretion is yet again left to the judges on what they admit as evidence. But we do have some guidance. So if we look at um, Article 69 of the 69.4 of the Rome Statute, you will see that the judges, when they want to rule on the relevance or admissibility of any evidence, they will take into account inter alia or amongst other things, the property value and any prejudice that this evidence may cause to a fair trial. So when we say amongst other things, this is part of the discretion of the judges. So they look at many things, but these are the two things that have been given to us as some sort of direction. And the property value means how this item, let's say how this photograph or how this video goes to prove or disprove an issue or a fact. And then the prejudice it may cause to a fair trial, I will speak about towards the end of this. I mean, as defense counsel, I would have to. Um, so when it comes to the property value, we mean what weight do the judges give to, again, this photograph or this video, or this open source information or digital evidence. It is definitely heavier. It will, given it will be given much more weight if it is corroborated by witness testimony, um, where there is also expert witness testimony that comes in to sort of bolster the determination on authenticity. And then they will look at provenance. So who is the source of this evidence? What is a chain of custody, which means who has handled this piece of evidence from its creation to the time it reaches the chamber? And these are, these are all sort of information that the, that the chamber is looking for, but they're not strict requirements. So we don't necessarily always know what they look for. But of course, the more of this information you have, the more you can convince the judges that this item is what it purports to be. And so when we look at some case studies at the ICC, we'll only look at two. Um, the first case at the ICC, the prosecutor versus Thomas Lubanga, that's a DRC uh, situation. He was accused of enlisting and, and conscripting child soldiers in the DRC. And the prosecution here rely on a video to show that just by looking at this video, you will see that these children are under the age of 15, which, mean, which means they're child soldiers. But you have to understand that this is also coinciding with allegations that prosecution intermediaries are coaching witnesses and that some witness, witnesses are not actually under the age of 15 or were not actually un under the age of 15 when these crimes were taking place. So the ICC is using this video, or the pro ICC prosecutor is using this video to bolster prosecution allegations that these were child soldiers. And this passed by the majority, so um, a judgment is either by majority or unanimous, and this passed by majority, where the judges say that some particular witnesses undermined the reliability of their own testimony 
but the video itself actually they use the word it speaks for itself which in my opinion is a bit boring right one of the dissenting uh, judges says let's exercise caution let's have more proof on age other than just visual proof and you know, I think deservedly so. We need more than just one type of evidence. But then you will see that the ICC prosecutor in the early cases, they also tended to rely too much on witness testimony, which we know is fragile, mostly because some of these cases are prosecuted years after the crimes actually take place. So there's that issue of memory, what you remember, there's all kinds of interferences that you will uh, read about. So we cannot solely rely just on witness testimony. And so it led to the collapse of some of these cases at very, very early stages of the cases. And the judges admonished the prosecution for relying too much on witness testimony and not other forms of evidence, like forensic evidence, to corroborate witness testimony. And so the first... Um, case that I worked in, that's the prosecutor versus William Ruto and Joshua Sang, was incredibly audiovisual heavy, which of course we can say for possibly two reasons. So following the admonition in various cases, and the case is falling apart uh, very early on, the office of the prosecutor released a strategic plan 2012-2015, but every strategic plan since 2012 has stressed the need for digital and scientific evidence and technological know-how. And so that's possibly one of the reasons. But the second reason is that um, the case that I was working on was dealing with post-election violence in Kenya, where I come from. And William Ruto, Honorable William Ruto, he's currently president of Kenya, then was part of the, of the opposition. He, um, as a politician, of course, there were very many rallies that he attended, that he held, and he was captured by, by the media, by people on their phones. He was posted on social media. This is 2007, 2008, so, you know, proliferation of mobile phones and all that. And then his co-accused, Joshua Sang, was a radio broadcaster, so we expect radio broadcasts to be included as part of, of the evidence. Um, and this is both by the prosecution and the defense, you know, to allege or to counter the allegations that these rallies and broadcasts were used to incite violence. I was case manager, so that basically means you pour through many, many forms of evidence that are produced by the prosecution and a lot that you want to, you know, as, as the defense to, to uh, tender as evidence. And... What you will see, and I have to say this actually, this is way before Bellingcat. This is way before we knew how to, um, you know, sort of authenticate information that does not have that much metadata, that has no exit data. And you, you will see that um, uh, in the confirmation decision and the confirmation stage of proceeding ha proceedings has a very low threshold of uh, standard of proof. Basically, the prosecutor just has to show that there is reasonable basis to believe that these people, that these crimes took place, and these people are responsible. It's not like in trial where you have to have, you know, um, beyond reasonable doubt, right? So, in the confirmation decision, the judges mentioned that some of the defense videos 
had not been authenticated. They did not, they could not prove the date and the time. And so a higher property value was given to the prosecution witnesses and not to the defense video. And well, the case did not reach the defense stage. Once it went to trial, it stopped at a point where we sort of know of as a no case to answer stage, which means the prosecution has not provided enough evidence to continue the case. And a lot is written about this. I, I will not, cannot go into more detail, but I think the point still stands, authentication, corroboration, etc. Um, and then we now see, and I think somebody else, a previous guest also spoke about this, we see the ICC relying on other types of evidence, which is you know, incredibly interesting. The Albert Fali case in the Libya situation, um, where the prosecution relied largely on evidence collected from social media on the, uh, to, to basically issue the arrest warrant. And then we have the Almadi case, which relied on you know, a lot of open source information, Google satellite imagery, and we see C2 research also creating this impressive reconstruction showing the destruction of um, cultural heritage sites in Timbuktu in Mali. But then Almadi pled guilty, our Fali died. So what we see as test cases at the ICC remain largely untested. And, you know, we will have a few more cases for sure, uh, uh, because it's a permanent court, right? But also, we have the Alassane case, which is part of the Mali situation. So, you know, possibly something to look at. It's currently ongoing. And then we have Ukraine, where the ICC has jurisdiction on war crimes and crimes against humanity. And we know incredible amounts of open source evidence exist. So, you know, interesting cases to follow. But I want us to imagine what this will look like, right? Of course, when we speak about authenticity and reliability of a, of a piece of open source evidence, we need to be perhaps extra careful on, on how we lead this evidence and who authenticates it. And we also know that we need to keep, you know, um, the chain of custody that has to be meticulous information on the chain of custody, the authentication process, and the person who leads this process is likely to be called as an expert witness before the court. And here I have to mention the fantastic mock hearing that Bellingcat was part of that is not about the ICC law, but it's quite illustrative of what we can expect going forward when it comes to open source evidence and just how judges might query this information. And also we can look at uh, MH17 trial in the Netherlands for clues on what to expect. And, you know, just by looking at some of the evidence that has come out and some of the information that has come out, you will see that there were dozens of experts called by the prosecution and the investigating judge determined their expertise and their independence. There was verification, authentication done by, you know, so many people, Dutch agencies, various experts from various countries completely uninvolved in the conflict. There was witness testimony as well. So, you know, in short, there's like an amalgamation of information that says this is authentic. What happened here is true and it can be proven in all these different ways. And I think that's crucial. And now to the last part of my talk, which is about fair trials. 
So I said before that when the judges are looking at the relevance of the evidence, they will also take into account any prejudice that this evidence may cause to a fair trial. So there's been a, a symposium going on um, in this international blog called Opinio Juris, um, where they've been specifically looking at aspects of, of open source evidence that are, I suppose, often overlooked. And my friend Sarah Zamsky and I, we've written a blog post that is coming out tomorrow about 3 p.m. CET, where we identify um, three issues relating to open source evidence when it comes to fair trial implications. And I'll mention just one now. Um, I think what is crucial for the defense, and I'm speaking here not only as defense counsel, but I also think when it comes to all parties of the court, not just the prosecution, but the defense and the judges as well, there is a crucial need to understand how open source evidence works. And I think the defense should be given the opportunity to query underlying data and how this evidence is authenticated and presented. So I spoke before about the Srebrenica case, where they use this US um, satellite imagery, where the burden of proof was then placed on the defense to disprove the reliability and authenticity of this information when they didn't have much to go with because a lot of this information was not given to them. And then, okay, now you can imagine they will probably they can also provide their own op open source or they can have more um, satellite imagery to counter their allegations. But as the defense party going into these proceedings, this information needs to be available. It's crucial that they are given this data so that they can be able to query it uh, in the same way as the prosecution and the judges. And of course, we speak about presentation of evidence. We know a lot of this information might be unintelligible without some form of visual representation. But the, again, the defense should be given the, the underlying data so that they themselves can query it in the same way as the judges. And they should also, of course, be given an opportunity to cross-examine the creators, the editors, so that they can prove that this is authentic. And there's a fantastic article written by Dileta Marquesi. It's on the intercepted communications used in an ICC case, the prosecutor versus Ongwen, in the Uganda situation, where the defense challenged the reliability of the presentation model of the intercepted communications, and also its reliability, you know, given that it was enhanced for the prosecution's use. And the defense said this could have impacted its integrity. They were not given this information, and actually, largely the information stayed with the prosecution. And I think the, the biggest takeaway here is that we should give this information to not just the defense, but also the judges as well. There should be independent uh, querying of all these sources of evidence. So that's my talk for today. Thank you so much for your attention. Um, I hope I made sense. I hope uh, it was interesting. I am here to answer a few more questions if you have any, but if you want to go into any aspects of my talk that you think you know affect your work and you want to talk, I'm on Twitter, at Judy Mionki, and you can DM me and we can discuss a little bit more. Um, and yeah, thank you so much, Giancarlo. Oh my God. Well, thank you so much. First of all, I'm getting excited here because, hang on, let me pull up your Twitter because people, uh, you're uh, offering for people to DM you or get in touch with you via Twitter. Yes. First of all, thank you so much for that talk. I felt like I was back in a university class and I, I got so excited. <laughs> so thank you so much. 
Um, so uh, Judy's um, uh, Twitter account at is in the chat there if you want to uh, get in touch with her. We do have a couple of questions here um, already. I'm going to ask one. And folks, if you're listening to this and you do want to ask a question, we have about 20 minutes left with Judy here um, um, uh, where we'll, we'll do this Q&A with her. So the first question here uh, is from uh, Saty. Hello, Saty. Saty is asking, does the judge consider admissibility based on uh, case law, uh, if applicable, based on the country in question, or would this supersede them as a litmus test? And I think you were at that moment when Sadie asked that question talking about um, the admissibility of evidence on those two points that you mentioned, uh, probative value, I think you said, and there was another point as well. Mm-hmm. So the question there is, does a judge consider the admissibility of evidence uh, based on case law uh, of the country in question? Well, well, thank you so much for that question. I, like I said, the admissibility is not necessarily fully for our eyes. We don't see 100% of what they consider. So I, I cannot 100% answer that question. What I can tell you is that the relevance of a piece of evidence, of course, means how it fits into an investigation. And the, and the property value is how it goes to prove or disprove a certain fact. So when the judges and at the ICC, it's actually very interesting because admissibility is not done um, you know, as the trial goes on, admissibility is often at the end in the judgment. So it's, in, it's incredibly hard to know unless they spell it out what exactly they pay attention to. And in the end, and I know this has, I used to also, I've worked very many places, I know, but I used to be part of the International Bar Association, International Criminal Law Program in The Hague. And we deal solely on fair trials. And they have questioned how fair it is that the defense do not know what's going to be admitted until the judgment. Because, of course, if you know this is admitted, you, you, know, you focus on that as opposed to focusing on everything that is you know, centered in as evidence. So, unfortunately, I cannot answer that question um, to 100% of your liking. No, no, that's perfect. I actually didn't, I didn't know that. So it comes at the, at the judgment stages when you find out here's what they admitted. Um, and I guess mostly sometimes, mostly, sometimes yeah. they do, mm. uh, you know, uh, give like intermittent, uh, decisions about admissibility, but mostly you will see that it's, it's considered at the end. Okay. Judgment. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. No, that definitely counts as an answer. So thank you so much. Uh, I see other people, um, are, uh, uh, oh, so this is Maria who I told you, Judy was, uh, she joined yes. the discord server a couple of weeks ago and she said, Hey, I'm a law student. And I said, uh, come back in two weeks because <laughs> we have a talk that's uh, just for you. So, hi, Maria. I think this is you. Um, Maria is asking, uh, to what extent can the prosecution use open source evidence that is gotten in quotation marks or, or sourced in quotation marks by third parties like Bellingcat? A lot, of course. You know, it's the same thing as imagining a report that was written by Human Rights Watch, uh, um, press release maybe by the New York Times, it's in the same way that they can rely on this. As, I, I think the, the biggest takeaway here is that you can imagine if they used it as a piece of evidence, they will want to call somebody from Bellingcat to speak about the authentication process. And as the defense, we will see the chain of custody as well. So we will see Giancarlo was the first person to get this piece of evidence. 
he also passed it on to X and Y. So that chain of custody is available to the defense. But of course, they can use any of this information. It's just the it's just in ways in which they will rely on expert testimony or witness testimony to corroborate this information. And you will see, especially in early cases, including our case in the Kenya case, there was a lot of reliance on reports from NGOs, which is also considered uh, open source information. Great, thank you for that. Uh, as other friends are uh, asking questions here, I have a question. Um, something that I found fascinating in your talk, uh, Judy, was the historical perspective that you gave us about the use of open source information going back to 1945. Um, I'm not a lawyer. Um, you know, I've only been doing open source work for, well, only, uh, maybe for almost 10 years now I've been doing open source work. So all of this is sort of new to me, both the idea of open source information as something that can be analyzed and its use in court to me is pretty new. Uh, you've told us that actually you can go back to 1945 and there's there's elements of, of open source uh, information being used in courts. So my question is, um, are you surprised by, by anything that's happening with the new kinds of media that are that are being considered by courts today? So, you know, you talked about film that was collected by journalists at concentration camps in the war. Now there's film that's collected by journalists who are in Ukraine, right? So is, is any, is any of, of, of what's happening today in 2023 to somebody like you who has this historical perspective, is any of this new or do you all look at this or do you look at this as, as sort of more of the same thing that's been happening really since 1945, but maybe with new platforms? Um, I actually imagine it as not necessarily new because, um, like I said, it, it should be queried in the same way. But I think what's new is that we get all kinds of people now documenting, right? And before it was mostly war correspondents. So um, when I speak about the media case, for example, I spoke about Alison Deforge, who was a researcher for Human Rights Watch and wrote a book about it. And I suppose there was this idea of traditional people who document this kind of information. And now we have everybody, um, you know, doing their bit. And I think what will be crucial is specifically for me as defense counsel, it will be interesting just how that ref how that is reflected in the chain of custody because as defense we we should be able to see this information and i think it should be queried in the same way um i think it will mostly be daunting on the defense because we have such little resources and i don't want to go into the whole war and to us defense council but there is very few resources and to be able to query all this information will be difficult and at the same time i think it's going to be interesting to see how the judges look at this information. Thank you yeah. for that. Thanks. We have a question here from uh, Dadellas. Hello, Dadellas. Thank you for uh, coming and for asking your question. And the question is this. Um, do you believe that AI, particularly audio and photo generation, like we've seen uh, over the last couple of weeks, will that pose a challenge for international courts? Definitely. I mean, it's, I'm not an AI expert uh, at all, um, but I do think it, it definitely will. I think before this, there was very little analysis on the authentication process. I said, for instance, there were affidavits to say this is the person who filmed it. 
but that doesn't necessarily mean anything now. I think there there should be. Um, I think it will pose a lot of you know interesting challenges for all the parties in the courtroom, not just investigators who are you know documenting this and trying to prove its authentic authenticity, but also like I said, all parties. But I don't. I cannot speak to exactly what challenges. This is why I said we should be looking at Ukraine and when the court finally has um, these cases in the dock to see exactly how they will they will query this. Thanks. And just to add a little bit to that, I mean, we, we get that question, we get a variation of that question often. So as, as uh, you know, people who work on, on verifying, authenticating um, um, digital information, obviously not anywhere near to the standards of an international uh, court, um, we get asked the question, like, what do you think about AI? And honestly, up until a month ago, before ChatGPT came out, I was like, nah, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm, I think we're still kind of far away from, from a time when I can't tell the difference between uh, a, a video that was made like in real life and one that was made by AI. But now I don't know. I think, <laughs> I think we're like weeks away from it. Probably it's scary. Um, mm -hmm. I have a, I got a question here. Uh, oh, can you believe that I just lost the question because of that, uh, tangent that I just went on? Give me one second and I will probably remember it. I see also that other people are typing their questions. We have about 15 minutes left with uh, Judy. Oh, here we go. Uh, I'm being rescued by Maria. What was my question? Hang on one second. What was my question? Um, okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll try to remember it. I'm so sorry. Um, here, Maria has another question. Maria is asking, uh, I'm wondering, regarding the MH17 case, if the open source material is usable, why the prosecution did not prosecute earlier as Bellingcat had gathered so much evidence earlier. I have this feeling that Giancarlo has a better answer to that, but <laughs> I, I, I guarantee I you, I don't. <laughs> well, I imagine now to begin with, they, like I said, they had dozens of expert witnesses to authenticate this information. So it's not that it's been brought in by Bellingcat and we know and trust Bellingcat, so we're just going to use it. It, I imagine they wanted all these other people to also authenticate this information and also to um, have witness testimony as well. But at the same time, I seem to recall, and Giancarlo can collect, cor correct me when it comes to this, I seem to recall that this, when MH17 uh, was the first ever Bellingcat case, and so, right? And, and, they, uh, and there was no clear documentation of the processes done mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so they had to sort of recreate the whole process so again i cannot answer this but i, I think mm -hmm. uh, giancarlo might i know. i don't know uh i'm not comfortable enough to say this is what happened uh, so i was involved in the ma17 investigation and i came in a, a later but um uh, I, I mean i started working at bellingham in 2018 so I, unfortunately i don't have an answer to that question maria um, but, but what you said, Judy, I think approximates <laughs> a, a really good answer, at least. Uh, I remember my question now while other, uh, people are writing their question. So, um, Judy, you talked about, um, you know, sort of a central theme of your talk, I, I thought was, the the importance of corroborating evidence, right? So when you go to mm -hmm. trial, you know, you're not just talking about like a video that shows X or a picture that shows Y. Um, as a researcher, and I think a lot of people in the server, particularly the ones who have been uh, geolocating images in Ukraine, you know, some of which may be evidence of, of war crimes or crimes against humanity, um, you tend to focus on the one picture that you're working on for like a week or, or however long, right? 
Um, mm. and, and so you have like this sort of like really narrow view of, of evidence as being one video or one picture. Can you give us a sense of how many pieces of evidence there might be in a trial that goes to the ICC? Are we talking about hundreds? Are we talking about thousands of pieces of evidence in a single case, tens of thousands? Well, as a former case manager, like I said, it was my job to receive the evidence. So I'm just going to give you a small peek into how that works. So I would receive um, incriminating evidence, clearly marked as incriminating evidence. And then there is evidence that is collected in the process of investigations, which every person should understand should be um, disclosed to the defense. So as you're collecting all these pieces of information, anything that you rely on should also be, you know, disclosed to the defense. And then we had potentially um, exculpatory or potentially exonerating uh, information. And so, yes, it was a lot of information. Unfortunately, you have, well, unfortunately, fortunately, you have to disclose all of it for the, for the sake of the defense because the ICC prosecutor, and again, I'm speaking for the ICC, because it's peculiar in this way, the prosecutor's role is truth-seeking. So it is not just to convict. It is also to look at potentially exculpatory, uh, exonerating material in the same way that he or she looks at the incriminating material. So yes, there is a lot of information, but I wouldn't say it is that one investigator's position to do this. This is why we have open source investigators and we have field investigators. So eventually it all comes together. Mm, thank you for that. Uh, we have a question here from Sarah NL. Hello, Sarah NL. Uh, the question is this, law enforcement and intelligence services generally have limitations as to how they can access materials. So they'll need warrants to get access to servers or warrants to get access to footage, et cetera. But with open source research, there's often information that becomes open source through leaks and whatnot. Um, so there's leaked data out there on the internet. Uh, would this cause issues in court? So I suppose the question is, would the use of uh, leaked data that's come online and it's been used in an open source uh, 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 report, would that cause issues in court? That's a very interesting question. And I wish, like I was reading just about this topic on the um, Berkeley uh, protocol. And this, of course, will no longer, it, it, it's such a gray area of what's considered open and not. So even if it's leaked, I, I think it crosses that line. But I do not necessarily have an answer for you. I know, for instance, in the Alassane case, the uh, Mali situation, there has been a lot of defense, um, querying information that has been produced out of torture. So I imagine in the same way, if this was not necessarily open source, um, that that would lead the defense to ask some questions, but uh, I'm not 100% sure. Thanks for that. Um, we've got another question here from Slow T. Hello, Slow T. Really good to see you also. Uh, the question is this. Um, I'm reading it out here now. Since you've said that there are few resources available for the prosecution, uh, would you more quickly rely on a group like Bellingcat because they have a name, name in quotation marks, other than uh, maybe another group 
uh, like for example, geoconfirmed. So I, I think that the examples here are, you know, you're a prosecutor at the ICC or you're, uh, and you're building a case. Uh, do you add more sort of um, weight to evidence, say, collected by a no, like a very kind of well-known organization, let's say, for example, Bellingcat, mm. as opposed to um, a smaller organization that's doing similar work, like, for example, GeoConfirmed? Um, first, I have to cl um, clarify that I was not speaking about resources for the prosecution. And again, you know, uh, please read uh, the blog post written by Sarah and I tomorrow, because we also speak about the resources and just how uh, little the defense have when it comes to um, being able to particularly deal with things like digital evidence. So I was more speaking about the, the defense when I spoke about the resources, but I do not necessarily think there is a lot more weight given to this group versus this group. Um, I think if I can look back to a lot of the reports that were written, it's, it's, a, it's almost the same way of asking, would you rely on Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International as opposed to a grassroots organization? No, it should not be that way. It should be any information that is authenticated should be used in a court of law. So I don't think there's any hierarchy of who's more known and who's not. Yeah, that's, I guess, you know, in, in, in the research field and the journalism field, that's precisely when you kind of fall into a lot of traps, right? When you go, well, so-and-so yeah. said it, they're usually right, or, or I, I think they're right, so then I'm going to, you know, mm -hmm. give them more, more weight than, than so, exactly. Yeah, so that's a, yeah, really good answer there. Thank you for that, Judy. Um, I got a question here as well. We got about five minutes left. If you are listening to this and you have a question, you have about five minutes to type it into the chat <laughs> before we're done. Um, and the question is this, so you talked about, and by the way, there's excitement in the chat here for this blog post that is coming out tomorrow at three, uh, central, uh, European time, you said 3 PM, uh, yeah. I, we're going to definitely be sharing it in the server. Uh, we're looking forward to that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you, you mentioned there that one of the points that you raised is that it's really important. It's crucial, um, that the defense understand you know, where this information is coming from, that they're given access to it, that they're given access to it in a way that is intelligible, because you said that, you know, and we know as open source researchers, some of this data is unintelligible sometimes, even to us mm -hmm. who are sort of the experts in this. Um, do you do you see enthusiasm in the court in general uh, towards, um, I don't know, like learning specifically about open source evidence? Do you see um, uh, excitement there for for this as a, a, a as a field that that everybody you know from the judges to the defense to the prosecutor should learn about, or is there more like institutional inertia perhaps where um, you know there's there's a sort of a slow slow crawl towards this eventually, or do you see lots of excitement for this in the court? That's an interesting question. I think. Um... I do see, I remember having a conversation sometime back when I did some sort of geolocation on Medium and I met somebody who works at the court and they said, whoa, you know, did not know about this. So I do think there is some sort of slowly moving towards that. I think the current prosecutor, Karim Khan, who used to work, who used to be, who headed um, UNITAD, um, he is particularly tech savvy. So I think there we will see more of this than we have seen in the past. Um, I also think it's probably currently more in the realm of the fact-finding missions in the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. I think this is where you see 
looking for an open source investigator, even though they conflate it with other digital forensics and all of that, we do see some enthusiasm. I think there's probably some conflation. I don't think there's a full understanding of it, but I think the excitement is there. And now we have Ukraine. So I think uh, this is probably the moment that it's going to be the big thing in international courts. Thank you very much for that. Um, unless there are any last questions, I see Maria is frantically typing. Perhaps <laughs> a last question. I'm going to try to stretch this out. Maria, you got to hurry up and type faster. But if not, Judy, you did say earlier that uh, if anybody is uh, wanting to catch up with you or, or ask more questions, they're free to do so uh, through your Twitter account. Uh, correct? And, and we shared it in the chat there. Um, yes. Okay. Um, do you have anything else uh, to say here to, to close this off? Um, uh, Judy, otherwise we can close the stage and call this a very <laughs> successful stage well, talk. I can end by saying that I have so many, um, like I think when I first started, like I said, I was trained by Bellingcat like a couple of years back. I think it was the first pandemic training. Mm. Um, and um, I've seen a lot of enthusiasm. I've seen a lot of peop more people writing about this. So I'm also happy to share with you a lot of good articles written both mostly from the perspective of an investigator but also written from the perspective of the defense that i think you know if you're very interested in this i'm also happy to share these resources thank you very much because that is precisely maria's question so aside from you do you have any tips for <laughs> law students uh, who are interested in this topic to look into certain topics or or, or people or books or, or sources again aside from you well, I think um, how the how-tos are definitely in the Bellingcat uh, website. That's exactly how you do these things. I cannot um, cite anybody else for this. But when it comes to the legal side, I also want to say digital witness, which I'm currently looking for on my desktop, my desk, but I cannot find. There's also um, digital witness, which offers a more legal side of um things when it comes to open source investigations um when it comes to the defense there's a fantastic article written by sarah zamsky and it deals with it's called when seeing is not always believing or something like that it's about digital reconstructions and just why we should be wary of of accepting things because they look like they are so i i maria i'm very happy to provide you with more resources Thank you so much for that. And when we share the blog post tomorrow, Judy, we'll make sure that we also link to your Twitter and to Sarah's uh, Twitter as well. She's also another person that I feel like I've interacted with a couple of times on Twitter. And I kind of, yeah. I think I congratulated her when she got into the PhD program. And, you know, like I've, I feel like I know her a little bit, but I've never <laughs> actually met her. Um, well, uh, thank you so much. We're just about at time. I, I just want to thank you again, really, for taking the time to come talk to us today. I, 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 like I said, I was smiling the whole way through because it was such a good talk and I felt like I was back in school and like learning really good stuff. So thank you so much for your insight and for your time and for sharing all of this great knowledge with us. Judy Myonki, thank you again for coming. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Stage Talk. If you'd like to catch a Stage Talk live and ask the guest questions, join the Bellingcat Discord server by visiting www.discord.gg forward slash Bellingcat. The music you've heard is titled 1983 by Ben Elson, 
and is courtesy of Epidemic Sound.